pray with me? Father in heaven, and now we come to your word and I pray that all that we sung may find its place in our hearts, even our lives as we read through this scripture. God, draw it close to us, us to it, that we might know you better, that we might live in such a way that brings you glory, casting all aside that we may follow Christ. In this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn please to Acts in chapter 21, please. Acts chapter 21. I want to read verses 1 through 16. Acts chapter 21, please. And as we read through this, it would be helpful, I think, to set its... Its context. Its context is, is Paul is, is finishing his missionary journeys uh, and he's set his heart to go to um, Jerusalem. Way back in chapter 19 and verse uh, 21, uh, Paul says, uh, Luke writes this Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must see Rome. So Paul's on his way. To Jerusalem, he's he's resolved. That is, it's his sense that the Spirit is leading him, and he's made a commitment, if you will, to the Holy Spirit that he'll go to Jerusalem, and then he desires to go on to Rome. And the reason this is so significant is what we read in Acts in chapter twenty and verse twenty-two, where Paul shares this with the elders of Ephesus. He says, "And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained." By the Spirit. Constrained meaning compelled by the Spirit. That, that word constrains means bound to, if you will, just as if his hands and feet were bound and he was a prisoner of the Holy Spirit. He says, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies, me, testifies to me in every city that imprisonments and afflictions await me. So, so that's Paul's... Paul's deal. That's the context here. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He knows that when he gets there, things could well be very difficult. And he then meets, you remember, at the end of chapter 20 with these dear friends, these elders in the church in Ephesus. And he, he bids them farewell with tears. And then verse 21, um, chapter 21 and verse 1, hear the word of God. And when we had parted from them, that is the elders of Ephesus, and set sail... We came by a straight course to Cos, and then the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patria. Uh, and having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we'd come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, uh, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit... They were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now, you get a feel of the tension now. Paul has resolved in the spirit to go to Jerusalem. He feels compelled, uh, constrained, bound by the spirit to go to Jerusalem. And now he meets with these dear friends in Tyre, spends the week with them, at the end of which Luke writes that through the spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Verse 5, 
When our days were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city, and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. So you get the scene. They're in the spirit, tell Paul not to go to Jerusalem, yet they accompany him to the ship. Clearly he's going on. They pray with him, they leave. Verse 7. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we, agreed, we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. And on the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, where we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now we mustn't miss the amazing work of the Spirit in that sentence, because if you remember... It was Saul of Tarsus, who is now the Apostle Paul, of whom we're reading, who uh, was the executioner of Stephen, way back in Acts in chapter 7. And at the end of Stephen's martyrdom, you remember there was a persecution in Jerusalem, no doubt led by Saul of Tarsus. One of the ones who fled that persecution was a man named Philip, who went to Samaria and then led this... Ethiopian eunuch to Christ and baptized him and then was on his way. That's this Philip. No doubt this Philip knew people that Saul of Tarsus had killed in addition to Stephen. And now he welcomes him into his home. We mustn't miss that. Verse 9, he, that is Philip, had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. The unmarried part, literally virgins there, probably is simply to give us an explanation as to why these daughters are still living in Philip's house. Uh, and they were prophetesses. So they were able in some sense, we don't know, Luke doesn't tell us exactly uh, what that means, but that uh, in some sense prophesied. Verse 10, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belts and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and delivers him into the hands of the Gentiles. So much like the old, some of the Old Testament prophets who would enact their prophecies, Agabus does this. And so he takes this belt and binds Paul's hands and feet and says, This is what's going to happen to you. And he attributes this to the Holy Spirit. Verse 12. When we heard this, now we would include Luke and all of Paul's traveling companions. And so these are Paul's closest brothers, if you will, the very ones who've been traveling with him, who have committed their lives, in a sense, to go with Paul and to, to minister with him, to serve him and serve Christ, including Luke, plus all these brothers and sisters at Caesarea. So when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. And after these days we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us, uh, bringing us to the house of, 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 of Nason, of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Now, this is not a particularly easy passage. 
Because we see a, a tension, a conflict, and we wonder, is the Holy Spirit really of two minds? Clearly Paul thinks he's to go to Jerusalem. Clearly others think he's not. Both attach the presence of the Holy Spirit to their urgings and their desires and their conclusions. And so, how do we sort all of this out? Because clearly, Paul goes to Jerusalem. He continues on. He's not persuaded by them and their urgings. And so, how do we really, how do we really uh, understand this? What are we to make of this? Plus, we have this sense of, of the weirdness, if you will, of these prophetic utterances, these, these daughters of Philip who, are, who prophesied, this man Agabus who comes and prophesies Paul's own conviction that the Holy Spirit has, has spoken to him. Um, when we consider what this Agabus has done in this setting, we, we realize that we don't see this very much. And, and when we do, it doesn't work out as nicely as with Agabus. In other words, there are prophetic words coming through the church all the time, it seems, at least in various quarters, and yet, and yet, none so specific and none so right on as as what Agabus is saying, and and we realize that it's 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 unusual, even in the New Testament church, as we read here, uh, to find such uh, to find such as Agabus. And we understand the general leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to give us wisdom through the scripture. The apostle says that all scripture is God-breathed and that's what's profitable for godliness. That's, that's where the training comes. That's where the leading comes. And that, that we are to, to, to offer ourselves as, 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 as living sacrifices. That's our service of worship. And our minds are to be renewed according to Romans in chapter 12 so that we'll be able to perceive what the will of the Lord is, that which is pleasing to him. And so we know that that's the general way. So this strikes us as odd as well. But the big question is, is is the Holy Spirit of two minds in the life of the Apostle Paul? It would seem unusual that that would be the case unless our bias is is to say, no, he he isn't. So, So how is it that we could... That we can understand this. Well, there's three um, conclusions, suggestions, at least given to us by uh, by those who study these things, that, that um, to try to work all of this out. For instance, there are some, not very many, but some who come to the conclusion that Paul was wrong to go to Jerusalem, and you can find this among even some what I would call very, very good. Uh, commentators on the book of Acts, people that we would trust uh, in, their, in their work. Um, but, but simply that Paul was wrong. It was his stubborn, stubbornness. He, he was the one who resolved to go. He made the commitment to go, and he committed that and made a vow to the Holy Spirit uh, uh, without the leading of the Spirit. And, and therefore, when these, come, these people come to him and say, Paul, you shouldn't go to Jerusalem, that Paul was wrong. Now, that certainly is a possibility. It's a possibility because Paul himself though an apostle, was not infallible. He was not sinless. He certainly could err. It just doesn't seem, at least to me, as I read through the scripture, that that is the case here. Luke doesn't give us the impression that, that, Paul, was, that Paul was wrong. In fact, Paul himself, in a, in, in a later passage in chapter 23, in, in verse 1, when he's arrested and speaking to the council, he puts it like this. He says, Brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up until this day. 
And so Paul's saying, my conscience is clear. Here I am. I'm in Jerusalem. All of this has taken place, and, and I'm moving along, getting to Rome, and, and my conscience is clear. I, I don't have anything of which to repent. I can't say, well, I shouldn't really be here because, because I really should have listened to my friends who told me not to go to Jerusalem. So his conscience is clear. In fact, Jesus rather affirms this later in verse 11 of chapter 23. And here's Paul, and the scripture says, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. In other words, Jesus speaks to Paul, and he doesn't take that opportunity to rebuke him and say, Paul, this is a fine mess you've gotten us into. Uh, You really shouldn't be here. Uh, But since you are, we're going to make the best of it. He says, no, no, no. You've testified about me in Jerusalem in the sense of that's exactly what I had planned, and now you're going to go off to Rome to do the same thing. So it doesn't appear as if Paul was was wrong in this in this instance. It doesn't seem that he erred. Thus, he, in, 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 in turning back the urgings of his friends, seems to have done the right thing. So, so how do we then understand the urging of his friends, especially in the context of these prophetic words, and especially in the context of them as in, in verse 4, saying that they urged him through the Spirit? Well, John Stott, another very faithful commentator, uh, makes this statement. He said, we need to make a distinction between prediction and prohibition. In other words, there is a prediction that maybe something bad's going to happen. That doesn't mean we shouldn't walk through it. That doesn't mean we shouldn't go there. That's especially true in the situation with Agabus. Agabus says nothing about whether Paul should go to Jerusalem or not. He just simply says, when you go there, your hands and feet are going to be bound. That is, you're going to be imprisoned in some way. And so, so he, But he doesn't say you shouldn't go. It's the people then who listen to that and say, well, Paul, please don't go. There's nothing about that being part of the prophecy. Now, it's a bit more difficult in verse 4, where Luke writes, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. But it may well be that, 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 that Luke knows that the situation with Agabus is going to come up and clear any confusion about that. That there's a prediction about what's going to happen to Paul in Jerusalem. And it's simply the people's uh, extrapolation of that, saying, don't go Because if you go, you'll be harmed, and we don't want that to happen. Uh, There's a third suggestion as well by a man named Wayne Grudem, who's a fine theologian uh, as well. And and he makes the point that as we read through the New Testament, and we talk about prophecy in the New Testament, we realize that it isn't infallible. Now, he would hold, and we would hold, that that which is written in the New Testament is infallible. That's the work of the apostles, and that's the God-breathing of the Scripture. But when the New Testament itself talks about prophecy through the church, it says that that prophecy should be weighed. For instance, in in 1 Corinthians in chapter 14, Paul himself speaks of this like this. He says, verse 29, Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be encouraged, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion. He says, if somebody comes with a word, whether it be Agabus or somebody else, or somebody saying, don't go, that needs to be weighed. It needs to be weighed, no doubt, by the elders of the church. In fact, Paul writes later like this in First Thessalonians in chapter 5. He writes in verse 19, Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, 
but test everything, hold fast what is good. So Grudem would suggest that even Agabus' prophecy isn't perfectly accurate. Because Agabus said when Paul goes to Jerusalem, the Jews are going to bind his, bind his hands and feet and turn him over to the Gentiles. That's not exactly what happened. What happened is that Paul did go to Jerusalem. The Jews came after him and took him aside to beat him. The Gentiles, the Roman authorities, came in and intervened. And they're the ones who arrested him in a sense to rescue him from the Jews, they, the Romans, not the Jews, bound his hands and feet. Now you can say, oh, come on. Agabus' point was simply when Paul goes to Jerusalem, he's going to get in trouble with the Jews, he's going to be bound over and given to the Gentiles, which is sort of pretty much what happened. And you go, yes, that's true, but, but in detail, it didn't quite work out that way. But do we go out and kill Agabus for a false prophecy? No. We grab a hold of that which is Right, and so Grudem would say that perhaps these people thought they were in the spirit. The part they were in the spirit was that Paul's going to get imprisoned in Jerusalem. But the part that wasn't of the spirit was when they urged Paul not to go. However we want to think about that, whether we want to think about it according to John Stott's distinction between prediction and prohibition, or whether we want to take it with Grudem's and say that perhaps they didn't have everything quite right, though they attributed everything to the Spirit. Either way, we realize that Paul was in a difficult position and now having to evaluate his own heart being tested. He says to these people, you're breaking my heart. Because he had resolved to go to Jerusalem. And his heart was this, as we see it in verse 22 of chapter 20. He says, But I don't count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish the course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's his heart. Now, why do you think, when they heard that Paul was going to be in danger in Jerusalem, why do you think that these people said, Paul, don't go? What would you have done in that situation? I mean, here's a man you love. Here's a man who may be the very one who brought you to faith and everybody you know. Here's the one who started your church. Here's the one who's the great apostle, the one who's taught you everything, really, that you know about Christ. And thus your life is, is eternally changed because of the teaching that he brought. And now you read that he's going to go and in some way could be killed in Jerusalem. Wouldn't you say, hey, don't go. I don't want you to go into that just because you love them. I, I can't tell you how many times I've sat with missionaries in dangerous and difficult situations and everything in me wants to say, don't go back there. Could have been even their love for the gospel. The fact that they would begin, begin to, to reason, how stupid would it be for Paul to be in prison when he could be out planting more churches when he could be traveling, when he could be out spreading the gospel as he's done. Why should he go to Jerusalem where it's just been said he's going to be imprisoned? Wouldn't it make sense to say he shouldn't go there and end up in prison, but he should keep preaching and stay free? Again, I can't tell you how many times I've been with missionaries who are in situations where they're being unfruitful and it doesn't seem very productive. And everything in me wants to say, leave there and go someplace else where you'll be more productive. Because I can't see why you, how you can be productive in the place where you're at. So, so leave there and go to another place. 
you get the sense that that could be behind it. And there could be a third thing as well. And uh, I'm attributing this more to me than to them, to my heart than to theirs. But you know, sometimes when people are willing to do risky and sacrificial things for the Lord, we begin to worry that that's the normal Christian life. And we begin to think, if that person's called to such suffering, if that person's called to such sacrifice, what does that say about me? So it would be much easier for me if they didn't make such sacrifice. It would be much easier for me if they wouldn't go. It would be much easier for me if they didn't do that because then my life could just stay really nice the way it is. But my life pales in comparison. So, so why not urge him? Don't, don't do that because then maybe we all have to do that. I don't want to do so they urge Paul, they urge Paul uh, not to go. But you get this sense that Paul knew something they didn't know. You get this sense that Paul knew something, not only about his calling, but no doubt about the whole of the Christian life. Because you see, when Jesus calls us to follow him, he doesn't call us to something that isn't sacrificial. He doesn't call us to things that won't involve suffering. He calls us very honestly. You see, if the Bible is anything, it's straight up honest. And there is the great call of Jesus, come to me all you are weary and burdened and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for my burden is easy and my, uh, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And he says, come to me, I'll give you rest. But he also says this in Luke in chapter 9 in verse 13, he says, I'm sorry, 23, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Yes, there's this sense of come to me and I'll give you rest, but there's this honesty with Jesus saying, listen, if you understand my call to you, you should understand that I'm calling you to a life of denial, of repentance, of turning your back on everything that was once yours and true and good, and now you realize that nothing is yours, that you're now submitted to me entirely. That's what I want. And when Jesus says, take up your cross, again, as we've said so many times, he's saying something's got to die. Cross was their image of something dying, of someone dying. He could have said, take up your electric chair, or take up your hangman's noose, or take up your lethal injection, or take up your firing squad. That's what Jesus was after. He says, now, when you come after me, you realize there's stuff that's going to die. All that was connected to your old life, all that was connected to not following me, now dies. Your own desires now are submitted to me. Your desires die. My desires become yours. So he says, that's what it's going to take when you come after me and follow me. So Paul wasn't expecting an easy life in that sense. When Jesus said, you know, the, the road to heaven is narrow. We understand what that means. When he says the word to destruction, the, 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 the road to destruction is broad, we know what that means. Later in that same chapter in Luke, chapter 9, verse 57, Paul uh, uh, Jesus puts it like this. He says, they were going along the road. Someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, 
Foxes have holes, holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow looks back and looks back as fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, listen, everything is now in submission to me. You're following me. Luke puts it like that here as he quotes Jesus. Paul would know that that would be the case in the whole of the Christian life. In fact, in utter honesty, Jesus puts it like this. In Luke chapter 14, verse 25, he says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus wasn't telling us to hate our parents. That was not an absolute command, but he's saying, I want you to understand what it means to follow me. Everyone else pales in significance. In that sense, your love to me is supreme, and you follow me. So you love your parents only because I say love your parents. You don't love your parents because you want to, because you think it's a good idea, because you think it's going to impress others, or even that you think it's good for them, but you love them because, because you follow me, and I'm one who says love your father and mother. Everything, he says, is submitted to me. And then he gives this illustration. Verse 28, he says, For which of you desiring to build a tower doesn't first sit down and count the cost, whether he's enough to complete it, Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able uh, to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you, who does not renounce all that he has, cannot be my disciple. Paul understood that the way of Jesus, the way of following after Christ, was a way that led to sacrifice, could lead even to suffering. That was no news to him. And so when he was told when he goes to Jerusalem, that's going to happen, that was no news to him. That was no reason not to go. You know, sometimes we think that if the end result of something is suffering, then it can't be the Holy Spirit who's leading us there. And Paul was saying, no, no, no. That's not it at all. It doesn't mean it has to lead to suffering. But just because it does lead to suffering doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit isn't leading you to that very place. That's the whole way of life. It's a sacrifice. It's, as, he, as Paul writes in Ephesians, it's a taking off the old and, and putting on the new. It's a stripping off the old and putting on the new. And it's that stripping off, taking off the old that can be painful. Even there, even in the midst of one's Christian life. And Paul also know, knew this, that in the, in the going out to spread the gospel... There could well be suffering. Uh, for instance, in Colossians, in chapter 1, in verse uh, 21, Paul puts it like this. No, verse 24. 
He writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Now notice how he puts it. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, by that, Paul isn't saying that Jesus' sufferings on the cross were not sufficient to save us, nor is Paul saying, I'm adding to that in such a way that, 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 that my afflictions will help atone for our sins. He's not saying that at all. He's simply saying that, that once, to get this gospel out, it may well require suffering. And he's willing to do that, because his driving thing, his driving force, is to make Christ known, to glorify him, to allow him to be the one, Christ that is, to be seen and to be honored and to glorify. That's what turns Paul's crank. That's why he can't be deterred. That's the thing he knows. He knows there's great blessedness, great joy ultimately in Christ being honored. And if that means that he has to to suffer in some sense, Paul's saying, I'm okay with that. Don't keep me from it. Don't break my heart. I need you to be with me. I don't want you to be against me. I don't want to leave here thinking that you're in great sorrow because what's going to happen to me? Think about it the way I think about it. Understand that though there's suffering, that Jesus will be with me there. And in the midst of that, he's going to be known. He's going to be the one that's going to be glorified. And we can all rejoice in that. So go with me on this. Don't discourage me from this. Now, quickly. Even as I think of this, I have two questions that really come to my mind. Number one is this. How often have I discouraged people? How often have I discouraged myself from radically following Christ Because I think that it's going to be hard, that I think there's going to be suffering, that I think it might be very difficult. How many times have we discouraged someone from radical forgiveness, for instance, from forgiving someone, even though we know that that person's been terribly hurt by that person, and we know that it's going to be terribly hard to forgive and And there'd be times when we think, well, I don't want to put you through this, so I'm going to back off. Or I'm really afraid that if you have to radically forgive, then I've got to radically forgive and I'll make a deal with you. We won't talk about it, but you don't forgive and I won't forgive and we'll just march on our nice little lives. How many times have we discouraged someone from staying in a difficult marriage because it's just really hard? And it would seem to us to be much easier, much more loving to say, why don't you just bolt? Why don't you just leave her? Why don't you just leave him? Why don't you just divorce? Because it would be so much easier. We want to say that because we, you know, there's a certain empathy, there's a certain mercy, there's a certain love for that. But, 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 but what if that's the call of Jesus upon their lives as they understand the scripture to live in the midst of that? Yes, it's hard. How many times have we discouraged somebody from, from 
uh, making a radical career change because it will hurt them financially when in fact it may well be the very call of God in their lives to do that, especially if it involves ministry, especially if it involves mission, especially if it involves something that, that's really tied to blessing people in the name of, of Christ in a, in, a, in, a, in a direct kind of way. And, and how many times do we sit them down and say, are you sure you want to do this? I mean, no doubt perhaps it's out of love for them, but it may be out of fear as well, because if they have to live such a radical life, maybe, maybe that means we have to live such a radical life, but we'd rather just not. And so how many times have... We've done that. How many people have been encouraged to abort a baby because that seemed to be the easier thing to do, not to do so, seemed to put that person in great jeopardy, might have been embarrassing, might have ruined their reputation, might have cost them. And so how many times has it just been easier to say, we just go, as opposed to call them into that thing which may be more difficult, but certainly the will of Christ. See my point? We mustn't think that just because God is calling us individually, corporately, into something that's sacrificial, into something that's difficult, into something that's costly, into something that seems risky, and something that, that might be confusing to others, that, that that isn't the Spirit of God. No, we have to be careful. We have to be cautious. He isn't just saying recklessly abandon everything that, that seems to be right and good and reasonable and all that. But still, could it be that we're sitting comfortably and enabling each other to sit comfortably when in fact the Spirit of God is leading us to that which may be suffering and sacrificial. <sighs> Keep that. Secondly, this. I ask myself the question, do I have the heart of Paul? <laughs> that even though he knows what's going to happen, even though he knows the difficulty, even though he knows the suffering, even though it's very clear what's going to happen to him. And you know, Paul is not one who would be naive about these things. This is one who's, this person who's been arrested before, he knows the difficulty of that. This is one who's been beaten before, he knows the difficulty of that. He, this is one who's been left for dead before, he knows the pain of all of that. And while on the one hand you may think, well, that gives him an advantage over the rest of us because he knows that God will be with him in the midst of that. And yes, that's true. But it doesn't lessen the actual pain of it and the deprivation of it, even the fear of it. And so he enters this not as someone who's naive, who just sort of is new out of school and saying, let's just go do this for Jesus' sake. You know, it'll work. He knows what this means really. My suspicion is he wouldn't have to reach too far on his body to feel a scar or remember a time when he hadn't eaten. Or think of a stone coming towards his head. But still he could say, yes, I'll go. It wasn't with the boyish enthusiasm, I don't think. It was with tears and it was with that. But still it was to go. Nothing could keep him from it because he knew that what was valuable, what was important, was the very name of Christ. I want to know that. Now, there's something very subtle here. I, I don't even know if Luke wants us to see this. I, I don't know if he wants, if this was sort of his design as he's, as he's writing this book of Acts. 
Uh, but it, it seems to be there, and that is this. There seems to be a parallel between Jesus going to Jerusalem to be crucified and Paul going to Jerusalem to be bound. Now, please understand, in no way would I think that those two things were equivalent or that Paul saying, I've got to go to Jerusalem because Jesus went to Jerusalem and I've got to suffer in Jerusalem because Jesus suffered in Jerusalem. But, but just to say that there's, there's this interesting parallel here that I, I think can be helpful just for us to get in our minds about how it is that Paul lived and how it is that we're to live. And the parallel, it goes like this, that, that Paul felt constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And he was told that when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer there. And, and, and everybody around him said, don't go there to suffer there. But then finally, the end result was Paul saying, I've got to go. This is why I live to glorify him. And, and therefore, everyone agreed that the Lord's will would be done. And you realize that in Luke chapter 9, and verse 51, the scripture says that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And it was after that point in time that Jesus says to his disciples, I've got to go to Jerusalem, and when I go there, I'm going to suffer at the hands of the chief priests and the scribes, and I'm going to be killed and be raised on the third day. And it was then that Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked him and said, you're not going to Jerusalem, and they're not going to do that to you. Paul was a little kinder, to his people, because Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. And he wasn't deterred, but he went. And when he got there, he says, What should I do? The hour is upon me. I, I came to this world for this moment that I would be glorified and my Father in heaven would be glorified. And then he had that moment. And the conclusion of this deep moment was, Not my will but yours be done. Now that's helpful to us because I think that what Paul is living and what we're to live is the way of Jesus. Now there's blessedness in it and I don't have time to give the balance to it. We sang the balance to it if you'll re-sing all the songs this morning. But there's something that we must catch in the midst here and that is the solemnity seriousness, the costliness of following after Jesus. That it is a casting aside, it is a dying to all that is not a blessing to him, all that is not true of him and living unto him. And I think there needs to be an honest, reasoned, thought out acceptance of the way of Jesus. What Paul knew in the midst of that, why this was not irrational to him at all, was that he knew that Christ, who suffered because of the joy that was set before him, would in the midst of this suffering be with Paul and give him joy. Hmm. Let's pray, Father. I pray for me and I pray for us that we wouldn't think that just because something could be difficult, sacrificial, risky, radical, even something that our friends might, hmm, at least at first, 
warn us against. I pray, God, that we would not shy from these things simply because of the danger. But that we would follow the way of Jesus. And Holy Spirit, you would lead us into whatever that means for us individually, whatever that means for us as a church. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. The response to the benediction is, Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah. It means that he leads us. Paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He leads us even into places of difficulty. And we follow... And as we follow, the word on our lips is hallelujah. Praise be to him. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip us with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah.